Hey, uh, it's really good to be with you uh, this evening. I, um, yeah, it's just, it's good to, to be back. It's been a while since, um, well, it's been a while since I preached a sermon, so forgive me if uh, this is <laughs> terrible. Um, and uh, it's been a really long time since uh, being able to be here uh, at Revolution, and since Revolution changed locations to meeting here. So it's, uh, it's really, really cool to uh, get to be back with you and get to worship together. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and just jump straight in. I, one of, one of, uh, one of my like funny experiences growing up, uh, was an eighth grade trip that I went on to Washington, DC. Anybody ever go on an eighth grade trip to Washington, DC? Anyone else? No? Yeah. A few of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky and, uh, I don't, like, I don't know why, but every eighth grade trip was always, no matter what school you went to, you went to D.C. for eighth grade. It was like the class trip that everybody went on. And, um, and the thing that I remember the most about this trip is not at all what my teachers had hoped that I would remember and, uh, you know, not at all what I was supposed to remember. Uh, the thing that I remembered from this trip the most is, and that I took away from this trip the most was, um, this was like 1996, and, uh, and Oakley's were like the coolest sunglasses you could have like if you if you like were cool you had a pair of Oakley's and so um so we get to DC we're walking around the city and like on the corners you would have these people who were selling stuff and they'd have these tables full of stuff and if you went up to them and you know very confidently we're like hey you got some Oakley's they would like reach under the table and pull out these Oakley's and we you know as eighth graders we were like oh my gosh are they stolen like are they real Oakley's like oh my gosh we're gonna get some real Oakley's they're stolen Oakley's and we were really excited about that I went to a Christian school so it's a little ironic that we were so excited about buying the you know prospect of buying stolen Oakley's um but I remember we kept going um at every intersection, uh, I kept trying to, like, fight my way to the front to be able to get some of these Oakleys from one of these vendors, and, and I just couldn't do it. And, like, all of a sudden, like, the, the teachers and the chaperones were starting to find out that this is, like, a thing that all the eighth grade kids were doing at every single vendor, that they were looking for these, like, stolen Oakleys. And so they started to try to shut it down and, like, say, you're not allowed to even try to do this. And so finally, I'm, like, freaking out. I'm, like, i got to get a pair of these Oakleys. Like, so many of my friends have gotten them. I haven't. i got to get them. So... I get to this one intersection, it's a red light, so our whole eighth grade class is like standing along this street, you know, on the sidewalk, waiting to go across, and I like sneak up to the table, and I'm like, hey man, you got some Oakleys, and he reaches under the table, and he pulls out three pairs of Oakleys, and he's like, which one do you want? And I paid five dollars for these Oakleys, and, um, <clears throat> and I was ecstatic, ecstatic. The light turns green, everybody starts walking across, and, uh, and I'm like pulling uh, pulling these, you know, Oakleys out of the little plastic wrapper that they were in, and I, like, unfold them, which is hard to do when you're holding the mic, but, like, I unfold them, and I put them on my head like this, and immediately, immediately, the right arm of the glasses pops off and falls onto the ground, and I was like, no, and so I, like, pick it up, and I'm trying to put it back on. It won't go back on. So now my whole class is moving, and I was moving across the intersection, and... <laughs> And, and I just, I'm like, no way, this is not how this story ends. And I go running back across the intersection while my whole class is going down this way. People are, like, people are yelling at me to, like, 
come back, come back, and I just totally ignore them. And I go over to the guy, and I'm like, hey, look at what happened. Look at you. Like, these, these broke immediately. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't sell you those. And I was just devastated, right? So now I'm in trouble, and I have these, you know, broken pair of Oakleys uh, that our class affectionately began calling Folkleys because we realized they were not, in fact, stolen Oakleys. They were just fake, and they were really, really, really cheap and, you know, just didn't work uh, at all. And, uh, and the thing that I took away from that trip was massive disappointment. Like, that's the, I don't remember probably anything from that trip. I'm sure we went to lots of monuments. I'm sure that we, you know, like, we're supposed to learn a whole bunch of things. But all because of something that didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to or the way that I'd hoped it was going to is this completely disappointing thing. And I remember just being like, man, this is this is the worst. This trip was totally worthless. I didn't even know about fake Oakleys before I got there. But, it, you know, it affected the whole way I saw that, that, uh, that trip. And um, tonight we're, we're continuing in this series called Re-Revolution, talking about the, the kinds of markers that have shaped and molded revolution. And we're talking about our first tagline as a church, which was to be a church for people that don't like church. And it was a tagline that, that uh, I will say I decided on. I'm not going to say I came up with it necessarily, but uh, there were lots of uh, churches around the time we started Revolution that were using taglines similar to this. Um, but, but it was a tagline that I really liked because I knew a lot of people who had had an experience with church that was similar to my experience with Folkley's, um, an experience that was very disappointing. And my desire was to communicate to people that we were going to be a church for everybody who had ever been disappointed by church or disappointed by Christians. That we, we, wanted, to, we wanted to just, like, it was, it was a desire to say, like, can you give it one more shot? Can you try it one more time? And as a follower of Jesus, I believe that every single human being has kind of woven inside of the fabric of who we are, an understanding of what God should be like. Like, we may, maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe, uh, maybe you've met somebody who says, like, I don't even believe there is a God. But I think every single one of us has an understanding of what God at least should be like. Like, if there is a God, this is what he should be like. And it gets distorted by all kinds of different things, right? It gets distorted by our family of origin. It gets distorted by the circumstances that we grew up in or that we live in. It gets distorted by the experiences we have with people who claim to know God, to be close to God, to be able to tell you what God is like. But I think at our core, all of us have this longing for there to be a God who created us, intended for us to exist, knows us, and loves us deeply. And I think this is why our greatest stories as humans are stories of people who were lost and then found, people who found that person that they had longed for for so, so long amidst circumstances that should have kept them apart, and yet somehow they, they came together, people who are more important than they ever imagined they were and more important than anybody around them ever told them that they were, more valuable, more worthy than they ever thought. It's why I can say a line like this, riffraff, street rat, I don't buy that, and I bet everybody in this room knows exactly what movie that line is from. Do you? No? Seriously? Come on, somebody knows. Help me out. Riffraff, if I sang it, you'd really know it, but I'm not doing that. 
Aladdin, right? Aladdin, yeah. Is why we're not surprised when a young moisture farmer from uh, a, t a planet living on the, uh, at the edge of the galaxy turns out to be more important and have a role to play in the fate of the universe. It's a story that resonates with us, right? Anybody know what that is? Come on, I know you know, Paul. Yeah, exactly, right? New Hope, right? Star Wars and New Hope, uh, if you didn't know. It's why, though we make fun of this line constantly and persistently, it is annoyingly memorable when Tom Cruise tells Renee Zell Zellweger that she, oh, come on, completes him. You complete me. Come on, you guys knew that. I'm not, by the way, saying that Jerry Maguire is one of the best stories we've told as humans. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that we all have this desire inside of us, and the reason that line is so memorable, it's Renee Zellweger, isn't it? Yeah, okay, cool, because I actually did look that up, and somebody might have misled me. I don't know. Um, can you imagine writing? Anyhow, never mind. Um, <laughs> we, we have this desire uh, to be completed, to have somebody that gives our life meaning and purpose, and there's something woven into the fabric of, of who we are that resonates with stories that proclaim the message that you're more valuable than you imagined or maybe than the people around you imagined that you exist intentionally and for a reason and, and that there's somebody who created you and loves you. This is why one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told is about a son who asks for his father's inheritance, basically saying to his dad, you're dead to me, give me what I would get if you were already actually dead, and then goes away and blows every cent of it, partying and playing, you know, he goes to Jersey Shore and hangs with Snooky, DJ Polly D in the situation, and just, you know, the money is gone, only to come crawling back to his father, begging to just be employed by his father, not to be his son, but to just be an employee. And what does the father do? The father sees him from a long distance off and runs to him, reinstates him in the family and throws a celebration because his son has been found. And this is why I think the story of Jesus itself actually resonates and is so compelling. When I was nine years old, I was introduced to Jesus through some people who loved my family and through a church that, that, that loved my family in spite of our brokenness. Um, when I was nine years old, my family was an absolute train wreck. I like to say we were kind of professional pagans. We were really good at being bad. Um, as a nine-year-old, I can literally remember laying in bed at night praying that my, fam that, my, that my parents would get a divorce because they were fighting so frequently and so angry at one another and at the world and everything around them that I just thought everything would be better if they weren't together. And then we got invited to church by these people who had consistently loved us but but began loving us in a way that was new and foreign to us. And that church that we went to wrapped their arms around us and their lives around us, and they loved us in a way that changed my family's outcome and changed my life, changed my parents' life and my siblings' life. I have two siblings that I wouldn't have had uh, if it weren't for the way that church loved us. We ended up adopting um, because of that church. And they demonstrated Jesus' love for us and introduced us to a picture of God that we were unfamiliar with. And it resonated so deeply with my family that it, it literally changed the outcome of our lives. It changed us to be loved unconditionally before we fixed ourselves up, before we got our lives together. 
And that change didn't happen overnight, and in fact, it's still happening. But meeting Jesus and experiencing his love through people changed us. And it led to me deciding as a 12-year-old that I wanted to lead a church that helped people understand who Jesus was and how much he loved them. And then at 15, I found out about church planting and decided that I wanted to move to a region of the country with the fewest churches and start new churches there because I knew that what I had found was too good to keep to myself. But as I was growing up, I continued to, to meet people who didn't like the church. They'd had bad experiences or because of their background or what they'd seen on TV, they assumed that they knew what the church was about. And because of this, sometimes without even knowing it, they had rejected Jesus. And I became extremely passionate about helping people experience Jesus through the church the way I had. There's a theologian who um, shaped a lot of the way I think about what it means to follow Jesus uh, named Alan Hirsch. And Alan Hirsch um, wrote a book called Read Jesus that I read uh, probably a few years before we launched Revolution uh, in 2010. And, uh, and we actually called the very first sermon series that we did at Revolution Read Jesus. And uh, in that book, he, he writes this. He says, our Christology should shape our missiology, which should in turn shape our ecclesiology, which is a lot of ologies in a very complicated way of saying in a more simplified manner, our understanding of Jesus should shape our understanding of the mission that Christians are on in the world. And that in turn should shape the way the church acts and is in the world. Or even more simply put, if we look at it kind of in reverse, I think it's a little easier to understand. The church should look like, behave like, and be like Jesus. Experiencing Jesus changed my life. Being loved unconditionally in spite of the ways that I knew I was broken, that I was messed up, in spite of the ways that I knew I was not worthy. It changed my life, and it continues to change my life to this day. And when I look at Jesus in Scripture, I see someone who loved other people who no one thought was lovable, were, or were lovable, who invited in those who everybody else had already cast out, whose harshest words were reserved for those who stood in the way of people experiencing God's love. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, and really this is the whole chapter, but in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 14, Jesus is attempting to wake up the teachers of the law and the Pharisees of his day by saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see, they were standing in between God's love and the people that he loved and telling them that they were cut off. They were cut off from God's love because they drank too much or hung out with the wrong people or because of their sexual orientation or the way they dressed or because of their political affiliation. But if you go back a couple thousand years to the foundation of the people of Israel, back to Abraham, where God chooses this guy for reasons that we don't understand and don't know, but he chooses this guy named Abraham who was a messed up individual on his own, but he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to choose you to start my people. 
And he says, and here's what my people are going to be about. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's speaking to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. God tells Abraham the job of his people is to be blessed, not so that they can hoard and hold on to that blessing and create divides in between them and everyone else, but so that they can then take the love and generosity and goodness of God and be a conduit of that love into the lives of every single person on the planet. They were blessed not to, not to hold it, but to be a blessing to the entire world. They were supposed to be conduits of God's love to the world, and yet Jesus, by, actually, not, it didn't take this long, but by Jesus' day, the leaders of the people of Israel had established all kinds of rules and regulations that you had to adhere to in order to be loved by God. And though they were supposed to be conduits of God's love, they were supposed to be gateways of God's love. They became gatekeepers for God's love. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and he radically loves those who had been told their whole lives they were unlovable. And his warning to the leaders of Israel was to stop being gatekeepers. Stop slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Open it to everyone, especially those who don't think they are worthy. And if that's how Jesus behaved, then that's what the church is supposed to look like as well. And the church is simply comprised by people that would say that they love and follow Jesus. That our job then is to be gateways of God's love to every single person on this planet. I like to say the job of Christians, the mission of Christians is to bring heaven to earth. That that's exactly what we exist to do, to be blessed, to be loved, to have God's generosity and goodness flow into our lives and flow through us into the world, thereby bringing heaven to earth. But I got to tell you, one of the things that has really convicted me um, in the last several weeks as I've been preparing for this message has been just stopping and thinking about the ways in which I personally have become a gatekeeper. And I think this is a danger for us as, as the church in America today, that we, we can very easily get caught up in drawing divides and making divisions And in my own life, I, as I've been preparing for this message, and like I said, I haven't, I've not written a sermon in like nine months. So this has been like the first one that I've written in a very long time. And as I was thinking about what I was going to say here and how I could talk about being a church for people that don't like church and what that should mean and what it shouldn't mean, one of the things that I just kept coming back to was just this idea of, of being conduits of God's love, being gateways for God's love into the world. And it really checked me because as I began to evaluate my life, I realized that there are some ways in which I've decided to be a gatekeeper instead in the recent years. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a, a longtime mentor of mine and friend of mine, and we stumbled on the topic of politics. And he ended up telling me who he voted for in the last presidential election 
and I wish I could make a joke about this right now, but it's just not funny, honestly. Like, I feel so deeply convicted by this in the last couple weeks that it, it, it really, I went off on him. I literally questioned whether or not he could be a follower of Jesus and have voted for that man. To his face, like, to his face, just straight up. And I went to bed that night not thinking how horrible it was that I had said something like that to him. I went to bed that night thinking, do I even want to be friends with him again? And it honestly wasn't until the next morning that I, I you know, if you all know me at all, you know that my wife is by far my better half. Um, she completes me. Um, see how it's all tied together? Um, no, it's not. I, I didn't even intend to say that. Um, uh, Sarah is a much better person than I am, far more like Jesus uh, than I am. And she got after me and was like, how, like, how can you say something like that? Like, do you honestly think Jesus would have said something like that? There's some kids that just moved into our neighborhood a few months ago, and I can't stand them. And I, I wish that was funny. Again, like I really do. I wish it was funny. But I, I confess to you, in the two months that they've lived in our neighborhood, I have been a gatekeeper and not a gateway. Heaven is less present in my neighborhood than it was, not because they moved in, but because I've withheld heaven from them. Because I care more about my own comfort than I care about people understanding just how much God loves and cherishes them. We live in this weird time where it's so easy to draw divides. We literally have draw, drawn divisions in our society today based on who will put a mask on and who won't. Who will get a shot and who won't. And when the church jumps into those arguments and begins to become gatekeepers, I just worry. I worry that in my own life, that Jesus might look at me and actually say to me, woe to you. Because you've withheld heaven from earth, even though I have so generously poured my love out on you. I think too often our politics, our desire to stay in our comfort zones, I'll say it differently. I think too often my politics, my desire to stay in my comfort zones, my desire to be around people who think like me, act like me, look like me, keep me from being a gateway of God's love on this planet. And the reality is one of the ways that uh, church for people that don't like church uh, really began to grate against us as a church and as a community over the years was that it's a divisive statement. We're basically saying we're better than other churches. Like, hey, you may not have liked that church, but uh, come on over here to Revolution. We'll show you what a real church is supposed to be like. And so because of that and because of a number of people who expressed um, distaste for that, even though it was with good intentions that we used that phrase, we decided a number of years ago to stop using that phrase as our tagline. But my hope and my prayer is that the part of that that meant 
pursuing people who were far from God, unloved by God, people that didn't know how much God loved them or maybe even felt like they were enemies of the church or of God or of Jesus. My hope is that the spirit of that tagline lives on forever in my life and in your life and in the life of the church, that we would always be seeking to love the people around us more and more perfectly, to be a more perfect representation of Jesus, a better representation of God's love to every person on the planet. You know, just like Folkley's, we're all imperfect, uh, you know, imitations pointing to the real thing that we actually long for. So my prayer for us is that with every ounce of strength that we have and every ounce of resolve that we have, that we would seek to love people more perfectly. Uh, there's a, a verse that, um, you know, I used to joke a lot about the fact that if you wanted to get into my email, all you had to know was this verse um, because it was my password for a very long It was probably the password of almost everything at Revolution. Matt and Claire and Kenny know. Like, this was like... I, if it still is, I'm sorry. Hopefully no one here is maliciously going to attack us on a cyber front. But, uh, <laughs> um, but Matthew 28, 18 through 20 um, uh, shaped my understanding of what the mission of, of the church really was because this is how Jesus operated and, and how he commanded the church to operate as well. It says this, Jesus is speaking. He said, this is right before he ascends into heaven. He's, he's been killed, buried, resurrected, been with his uh, followers for about 40 days, and he's about to be, and he's about to ascend into heaven, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And what I love about that is First of all, the authority with which Jesus is speaking. He's literally saying, I'm God. Like, he, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am, I am in charge of everything that is and that exists. Therefore, go and make disciples. And oftentimes that gets misconstrued, and throughout history there is no doubt that has been misconstrued and misused in order to control people. But what Jesus is really saying here is go love people the way that I have loved you so that they will fall in love with me and follow me and be conduits of God's love and heaven will come to earth. And particularly for an almost entirely, if not entirely, Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to here, he is, going, he is saying go and love people that are different than you, that look different, think different, act differently than you, and bring heaven to earth. And my prayer for revolution is that that would always be a mission that rings clear and true in every one of our hearts and minds, and that we would always be a place that loves people and points them to the love of God uh, by the way that we do that.